Live from Earl Palmer Ministries. Welcome to The Kindling's Muse, an intelligent, imaginative, hospitable exploration of ideas that matter in contemporary life. And now, here's your host, Dick Staub. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dick Stoff. Thank you for your spontaneous applause here tonight. I want to welcome you to the Kindling's Muse at Earl Palmer Ministries. Uh, this event is taped for podcasts in front of a live audience at Kane Hall on the campus of University of Washington. Go Huskies. Each month, uh, Reverend Earl Palmer chooses a book or two that every thinking person ought to read. And uh, he begins with some opening comments, followed by a conversation with me. And then we open it up for uh, questions and comments from our audience. Tonight, the theme is Power That Harms, Power That Heals, and we'll be taking up uh, C.S. Lewis's books, That Hideous Strength and Miracles. Uh, Hideous Strength, both of these are amazing books. Hideous Strength for people that love Lewis with his delicious ability to skewer sacred cows. This is a book that just does that in amazing ways. For instance, on relativism, one of the characters said, I suppose there are two views about everything, said Mark. Two views, there are a dozen views about everything until you know the answer, then there's never more than one, is the response. Or when somebody's thinking, well, certainly educated people can't be duped, and Lewis has a character saying, why you fool, it's the educator reader who can be gulled. All our difficulty comes with the others. When did you meet a workman who believes the papers? He takes it for granted that they're all propaganda and skips the leading articles. And then he says this, Mark's education had the curious effect of making things that he read and wrote more real to him than things that he saw. That's Lewis with his very sharp knife out, beginning to slice up the elite in the educational world, in the political world, and on and on and on. It's just an amazing study, and both of these books are a study in their own way of power. Uh, so at this point, let's turn it over. Will you give me a big round of applause for Earl Palmer oh, hey, yeah. as he uh, leads in this discussion? Well, uh, Lewis uh, was very alarmed at what happened when he saw uh, the rise of the Third Reich and of Nazi Germany. And in 1939, he sort of broke his silence and gave a speech called Learning in Wartime. Uh, actually, the very week that Germany uh, invaded Poland, he gave this speech, and he said, good philosophy, he's, he's telling, uh, in learning at wartime, he's telling these uh, young uh, students at Oxford, trying to make the case, how can you study when the world's at war? Uh, and then he makes the point that now you must study, and you must be at your post, and you must think during this time, and so he wrote this. Good philosophy must exist, if for no other reason, because bad philosophy needs to be answered. The cool intellect must work not only against cool intellect on the other side, but against the muddy mysticisms which deny intellect altogether. And he wrote that, or said that, in 1939. And, but he wrote some novels where he kind of worked this out in, in, in his novels. The three novels were Out of the Silent Planet in 1938, and in 1943, right in the middle of World War II, he wrote uh, Paralandra, and in each of these had one character, Ransom, that goes through them all. And then this third novel he wrote in 1945. 
This is at the very end of World War II. He wrote this novel, and that's called The Hideous Strength. Uh, in some ways, the most, it's the most terrifying of the three novels. And, uh, and it doesn't take place in Venus, or it doesn't take place in Mars. It takes place in a little college town uh, in England. And that's the novel, the third novel. And then, interestingly enough, in 1945, he wrote this, and just two years later, he wrote uh, one of his most important Christian books and, and theological books, The Miracles, A Preliminary Study. And so I decided to put the two together because, it, in a way, that hideous strength is a terrifying story. And it's, it's a big and complicated story, so I have to, I have to uh, uh, kind of do some slicing to make, to make it workable for us tonight because it's too many themes. Uh, in fact, Graham Greene, who uh, reviewed the book, said that Lewis's imagination almost got the best of him there because he has so many themes going on in this novel, it's hard to keep track of all the themes that are going on. And that is true. That may be a weakness in the novel, but maybe that's the kind of chaos that he was experiencing uh, at the end of World War II uh, and what he had seen through it. So uh, anyway, uh, he wrote uh, this book, and then two years later he wrote a really wonderful book uh, that answers some of the huge questions that this book uh, surfaces. And, uh, and you'll see, uh, I think you'll see how miracles, uh, in a sense is also a book about power, but it's power that heals. That hideous strength is a book about power that harms. Uh, Lewis himself said this at the beginning of that hideous strength in his preface. In fact, I pr printed uh, that preface on the, the little handout. We gave, decided to give you a little handout with, with the preface that Lewis uh, uh, puts in the very beginning of his, of his novel. He says, this is a tall story. Now, that is very important because there's so many imaginary things in this story that couldn't possibly uh, happen, and, but that's why he calls it a tall story. This is a tall story about devilry. Now, as you know, he wrote the Screwtape Letters, which was also a very humorous treatment of devilry. Uh, a senior tempter who uh, gives advice to a junior tempter with a young patient who happens to be a British soldier. And in the, uh, in the sort of the heartbreak part of, of Screwtape Letters, that British soldier who's the patient actually dies in the end of that story in an explosion. Lewis saw that in World War I. Uh, he himself carried shrapnel from an explosion that happened uh, with, uh, when he was standing next to a man named Johnson who was killed right in front of his eyes, and a corpsman killed right in front of his eyes. A very uh, searing experience that he had in World War I. So Lewis never really got over that and worked through a lot of those feelings in his novels, in his, sto his stories, and uh, certainly in that hideous strength he does. But he says it's a tall story about devilry, though it has behind it a serious point. We'll try to figure out what maybe the serious point is, which I have tried to make in, 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 in another book he wrote, The Abolition of Man. In this story, the outer rim of that devilry had to be shown touching the life 
of some ordinary and respectable profession. And so he picks a small college, and uh, it's, in a, it's in a small village. And we have two uh, people characters that are going to be important in the story, but I'm only going to really work with one of them. Uh, first, uh, a young couple named Mark uh, Studdard and his wife, Jane. Jane is a scholar. They're both at this college. She's not at that college. She's had been to another college and is doing her dissertation, actually writing her dissertation on John Donne, the great uh, uh, poet who was such a great influence on George Herbert, uh, contemporary of George Herbert. We, we had an evening with a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago. And uh, John Donne, who was the... the uh, the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, and a great poet. She's doing her work on that. And Mark is a young fellow uh, in sociology at this college that, uh, 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 in this small town. And uh, we're going to mainly trace Mark. Jane ends up safe. So don't get worried about some terrible thing happening to Jane. She does have a scary experience in the, in the course of the story, but she ends up safe uh, and in, a, in a place called St. Anne's House. She ends up safe. So uh, I'm not going to really work with her, though half of the story tracks Jane. I'm just going to track her husband, Mark, and uh, watch him... Uh, as Lewis traces the ways in which he is bent by a, a, a fierce and, and vicious uh, devilry that has taken over uh, this town and this college. Uh, we are going to meet in this village the National Institute of Coordinated Experiments. It, tends, it, it turns out to be a government-sponsored or approved institute. It's called NICE. That's its uh, a, a short term for it. And this National Institute of Coordinated Experiments, very soon, though, you realize that it's a fierce and very dark conspiracy. It's a conspiracy almost like a lot of experiments that were done in the Third Reich. Trying to, where the Third Reich had experiments trying to create a super race. This is trying to create a super intelligence. A super intelligence. And to take over the world, actually. And it's a fierce uh, and very dark conspiracy. And they have chosen to settle this institute in this village, and they take over the village, take over the college, take over everything. They have their own approved police force which is also a part of this fierce and vicious, uh, dark uh, institute. And they, uh, and they have a mythic reason for coming to this town, and we're not going to go into that, but they believe that Merlin's Well, uh, which is in a wood that belongs to that college, there is buried there uh, the uh, druid... Marilyn from the King Arthur stories, and that he's buried there, and if they can dig him up and get his brain, they can activate his brain 
and make use of that intelligence and power and the power of Merlin. And that's their, that's their myth, and that's what they're working on. And so, the, I, I told you, it's a tall story. And, uh, and, and that's very hideous in, in the story, but that's what they're working on. And, and they, have, uh, they have several things they have to do. They have to, one, get control of the property, get, get control of the wood where that well is, and can, they, they plan to dig up this uh, 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 druid, this ancient magician, uh, who's so important in the in the life of the of the of the King Arthur era, and then they believe they can recruit him for their power, or at least control him, or control his mind and get a hold of his mind. So this is their fierce plan. Uh, now uh, we're going to watch. His, uh, Mark's wife plays a, a part in it that she doesn't even know about. We discover in the very first opening lines of the novel that Mark's wife, Jane, they're, they're kind of, uh, they're married, but they're not particularly happy in their marriage because he's been uh, preoccupied in his life and she's been working on her project. And she, right at the very beginning, we discover that she has disquieting and very terrifying dreams. But this, this uh, core uh, of the devilry core, they already know about that as well. Somehow, they know about her dreams. And they believe that her dreams will be able to play a part in their ability to discover Merlin and be able to discover that power. So they're after her, but you don't know that. Mark doesn't know that in the story until the quote I gave you uh, and put on the page, we'll read that later, but he'll later discover that they, they're after his wife and they've got to get a hold of her so that her dreams they can program and use in order to find Merlin in order to have this uh, incredible experiment they're doing uh, to create this uh, majestic brain uh, to control everything. That's the story. Well. What we're going to watch is what happens to Mark. Mark is an ambitious young man, and his ambition and desire to become a fellow and become, uh, to move up within the ranks of the college makes him, makes him easy to be tempted. And we meet that temptation early on uh, in, uh, in, in, the, in the story. There's a faculty meeting, and in the faculty meeting, uh, he's sitting there, and a, a young a man comes up to him who happens to be the sub warden at Bracton, the college, and he says uh, his name is Curry. He says, "Yeah, we'll take the a hell the hell of a time probably to go on after dinner. This meeting will, this faculty meeting will, and we shall have all the obstructionists." It's interesting. You're going to notice from the very beginning the core inner circle of this uh, fierce conspiracy love to totally mock anyone that that's an opponent. So right away, and you'll see Mark gets swept into that. Uh, the, the obstructionists, they use words like they're stupid. They don't know anything. But they are the ones who, that are bothering us. But we're the progressives, and we're going to beat them down and, of course, uh, succeed against them. So uh, 
uh, he hears this. Probably the meal, the, the, the meeting will go on after dinner. We'll have the obstructionists wasting time as hard as they can, but luckily that's the worst they can do. You would never have guessed from the tone of Studdick's reply the in, what intense pleasure he derived from Curry's use of the pronoun we. So very recently he had been an outsider watching the proceedings of, of this college, and now Curry, the sub-dean, uh, the sub-warden, uh, is now calling uh, the uh, the other group that are in this meeting, the other people, he's calling them obstructionists. And so Curry then says, uh, but uh, we, uh, uh, we uh, are the progressive element in the college. It all happened quite suddenly and was still sweet in his mouth. To hear the word we, we have a circle now, a group, and he is in it. And then within this same moment, Almost immediately, Curry, this sub-warden, uh, uh, points to a man and says, ah, there's Dick. Dick is here. And Norris, uh, uh, Mark does not know who Dick is. He says, well, don't, you don't know who Dick is? That's Lord uh, Beaverton. He is there. And he is uh, now come here. He's, they're talking about him for a position in the cabinet. He's uh, in the House of Lords. And he's a very high official and a, a benefactor of the college, highly, uh, highly placed. And, and Mark is just impressed that, that he uh, sees him there, and he says, and he wants to meet you. And then uh, the sub-warden says, and by the way, you realize, don't you, Mark, that you got your fellowship because of Lord, uh, Lord Feverstone. Lord Feverstone is the one who got you your position. And by the way, his name is also Dick Devine. Uh, if you've been to the, if you've read out of the Silent Planet, you know who Dick Devine is. But here he's Lord Feverstone, and he chose you. And you know, you got your fellowship because of him, because he's so powerful. And this is very, very impressive to Mark. And then Feverstone takes him in his very uh, beautiful car to. Uh, uh, the, the site now of the NICE headquarters, the headquarters of, of this uh, uh, National Institute for uh, Experimental, uh, you know, for Coordinated Experiments, and, and lets him know that they are very impressed with him. And, and now he knows two things, that Feverston knows who he is, and that's impressive, and, but then to hear this, Feverstone's is the one who got me my fellowship. Now this is a little bit disarming because he thought that he got his fellowship because of his own brilliance and his own, but no, oh no, because they chose you. You're on the, we want you on the inside. So in a way it was an honor if you look at it one way, but it was also the diminishing of Mark. Notice how he's being diminished. Yeah, you've got your position because they chose you for this, or he, Feverstone, who's so wealthy and is in, in the House of Lords. He, he saw you. He chose you. Isn't that something? So Mark should be thrilled, but yet Mark's feeling a little baffled because he thought he passed an examination and was the most outstanding in the exam. He said, no, another guy really wrote a better paper, but you're the one that Feverstone wanted, and that's why you have your fellowship. And if you're an academic person, you know, this is a 
This is a big blow to Mark, but on the other hand, he's an insider. And he's taken to the headquarters, and he's quickly told that he, they want him to be there, employed. And, uh, and they're talking about salaries that are astronomical salaries, though he never gets a salary actually quoted. It's always what they're going to do, but they have to, we have to work it through lower. But you, we, you're a very important man. In fact, you should join this elite club. There was a club there at the, uh, at the Institute to, because that's where the important people meet. It costs 300 pounds to join for life. He doesn't even have that much money in his bank account. But he then feels, do you want to join? Oh, yes, yeah, of, cor of course I want to join. So he now realizes that he's been chosen and Lord Feverstone has chosen him, uh, and yet he's indebted to him now. Notice there's this debt load already, and they've got him uh, in the association, and now he's even economically indebted. He doesn't even know his salary yet, and yet he's joined this club for 300 pounds. So that's the way it all starts. Then they finally give him an assignment, and the assignment is that he's a sociologist, remember, is to study the city, this study Edgeworth, that they're, where they're located, and he's to write articles about Edgeworth. And so he makes a quick little tour uh, to, uh, of the, and, but he has advisors that are telling him sort of what to put in the story, like, you know, it's a beautiful little town, but did you notice how unsanitary it is? Uh, no, I, I didn't really know. Well, it really is. Uh, the stream is not sanitary. And because, see, they want to get complete control of Edgeworth so they can dig and go down to Merlin's grave and find, and hopefully he'll still be alive. And they're going to try, or, or they'll be able to animate his brain like they've done with another brain. They've animated it with blood and make it alive. So they want to do that with Merlin, the famous druid magician. And, uh, but he doesn't know that. But he's got to write these articles. So he, you, he gets his job. And he still doesn't know what his salary is, but he knows he's on the inner circle, and they keep saying we, and then they keep downing other people around him that are, they're losers, you know. That's a loser. In fact, one, one young man named Stone, uh, he finally he says to himself, I, I don't want to really be seen with Stone because uh, a person like that can drag you down if you're with a person that's beginning to fade and because they were already criticizing him as not fitting the bill like you are so he starts to write articles but they're feeding him like the the article the first article he writes about this beautiful little town he's going to say it's beautiful but they say no it's unsanitary and they're because they've got to justify the fact that they need their police force and they need to have their own experimental control over everybody that's in that place or the animals and everything that's there. And finally, it gets to a low point where uh, at, uh, at one point, uh, uh, the conspiracy is setting up a riot to happen, and they, uh, they want a riot to occur, and then... The articles that he has been writing, and he's been writing a number of articles, always not really going to the place, a little bit like the thing you read, but they're giving him information that they felt should be in the articles. So he's creating fake news, and, and it's being published all over England about this, uh, this town. 
and then and finally they are going to have a riot and but he's to write the story about the riot but it's it's before the riot even happens because they're staging the riot and that way they can justify the full power of their police force which of course is a very gruesome police force and so uh anyway well i ad- i admit said mark uh, he said, you, you surely don't need to wait for a thing to happen before you tell the story of it, is what Feverstone says to him. And Mark says, well, I admit, said Mark, and his face was full of laughter, I had a faint prejudice for doing that, uh, doing so. Uh, and, uh, and yet this was the first thing Mark had been asked to do, which he himself, before he did it, clearly knew to be criminal. But the moment of his comment, of his consent, almost escaped his notice. Certainly there was no struggle, no sense of turning a corner. There may have been a time in the world's history when such moments fully revealed their gravity. But, uh, but for him, it all slipped past in a chatter of laughter, of that intimate laughter between fellow professionals, which of all earthly powers is strongest to make men do very bad things before they are yet individually very bad men. And that's an interesting Lewis quote. He, this is a kind of a low point. He is now writing an article about a riot as if it has happened and how these thugs uh, came from the village and some were students and they did these outrageous things for which now uh, they need this very strong police force to counteract it. And it almost, it reminds you of the evening of glass in Germany in 1930 and 1938 when a, 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 a young 17-year-old boy in France uh, uh, shot a member of the, uh, in the, in the German uh, embassy because his parents had been shipped to Poland they were Jewish family had been shipped out of Berlin and he shot this man and then three days later what the, uh, Goebbels put in the, uh, in the German newspapers a spontaneous riot the riots happened in Germany and Jewish shopkeepers and synagogues were burned and many people lost their lives from this spontaneous riots that were all orchestrated and fortunately uh, in, inside the Third Reich uh, by uh, Shire points out that uh, some of the uh, documents that were captured by the Allies show that that entire crystal night, that entire night of the broken glass in Germany was all staged. But they, they had wrote the story, you might say, uh, about that after it had been staged. And, that, and so that's what, that's what he does. And you can see Lewis puts that into this story. He's writing a story uh, writing a news article about that that uh, is is outrageous because it, it's he's writing it as if it's happened, but it's the story is is produced and put in the news so that it instantly was out the moment of the riot that had been staged. Uh, and then the uh, quote that I I gave you, uh, he finally uh, he gets uh, one of the insiders says, look, my friend, the real question is whether you mean to be truly in with us or not. I don't quite follow, says Mark. Do you want to be a mere hireling 
or do you have already, we've already come too far for that. And you are the, at the turning point of your career, Mr. Studdock. And then he says, but of course I want to come in, said Mark. A certain excitement was stealing over him. And then the head, that's the head of the whole uh, institute, the head thinks that you cannot be really one of us if you will not bring your wife here. See, they've been flirting with that over and over again, saying, you know, we know your wife is, uh, is having illness problems, and she'd be here, we have good medical treatment here, and this is where she should be. But Mark knows his wife and knows she would not like the style of laughter, the style of, uh, of the joking that was going on, like I just read to you about the, the riots. She, uh, she had too much integrity for that. So he doesn't want her to come. So he keeps holding them off and holding them off. And now finally, uh, they're just saying, if you want to be one of us, uh, the head feels you've, uh, we've got to have your wife here too. And he still doesn't fully understand why that is because they want, uh, they want her brain. They want to capture her because she has these dreams and all of that. And so that is another low moment. But finally it becomes, he be, does become clear-headed. You know, it's interesting, Lewis is portraying here uh, the progress toward bentness how you get bent by little, these little steps, wanting to be on the inside, wanting to be uh, respected, uh, wanting to be uh, 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 in, in the place where power is. And then, uh, but he, he doesn't completely come in. It, 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 like he resists bringing his wife in. We're glad of that, but it gets him into deep trouble. In fact, they finally arrest him under false charges, and they have him staying with a, uh, they did dig the grave of Merlin, and they found a, a tramp who happened to be there, and they thought that was Merlin, and that's the funny part of the story. They, they feel that he, and he, of course he doesn't, uh, he doesn't understand anything except he knows he's been taken and uh, cleaned up and dressed and put in nice clothes and given food, anything he wants to eat because they're honoring him. And they're talking to him in Latin all the time, ancient Latin, and he doesn't understand a word they're saying. And, but he, smartly, he never does respond in Cockney. But, he, but Mark, who's the guard, see, Mark is now, it might say, imprisoned with him because he's, he doesn't know he's being imprisoned. But they say, we want you to watch Merlin. We think this is Merlin. And, of course, it's not. It's this tramp that is uh, being wined and dined, and they're talking Latin to him, but he doesn't understand. So they say, we've got to get someone who knows the most ancient Latin. And so then they advertise, and then the real Merlin uh, is now has appeared, and he does come as the translator. And that, that brings the story to its close, uh, which is kind of funny and tragic. But at any rate, uh, he is now guarding uh, the false Merlin, and they then decide, because now they're coming to the great moment where they feel they have Merlin, and, and the translator can translate for Merlin, but what they don't know is that it's the translator who is the real Merlin. And so they're going to be them both dressed up beautifully, one in a doctoral gown, uh, the tramp, and they go to the banquet, and they're to be in the banquet, and that's when uh, this great achievement is going to happen and the power is going to be transferred, they feel. And so the head of the whole thing decides he will now 
allow Mark into the inner, inner circle. And that really is the moment when everything does come to a, a kind of a theological uh, moment in the book. Uh, the man is named Frost, and uh, Frost tells him that now you must do, uh, you have to do one more thing uh, in order to be uh, fully in our, and now you can see why it's called a, 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 a devilry story. Uh, and they have on the floor a wooden crucifix and a wooden Jesus Christ who is on the floor. And everyone that, that becomes on the inner circle, the innermost circle, must walk on this cross and walk on this uh, wooden Jesus uh, to signify that they're in this, in this full power circle. And Mark doesn't want to do it. And finally, uh, and Frost keeps saying, the bank was about ready to start, and Frost wants him to be now in the inner circle and because they feel Merlin's going to be there and they want, they, they're going to achieve their hideous strength. And, uh, and he, uh, at this moment, uh, Mark uh, looks at this man on the cross, on that wooden cross, and Mark is not a Christian. That's made quite clear. He, he says, uh, that was a moment, uh, uh, this man himself on that very cross, uh, he died complaining that the God in whom he trusted had forsaken him and had in fact found the universe a cheat. But this raised a question that Mark had never thought of before. Was that the moment on which to turn against that man? If the universe was a cheat, then what was the good reason for joining its side? Supposing that this, this strait was utterly powerless and always and everywhere certain to be mocked, tortured, and finally killed by the crooked. See, Lewis has been working with bent, crooked, straight all the way through the story. Well, what then? Why not go down with the ship? He began to be frightened because he knew that, that Frost could kill him because he had a gun there, and, and Frost does end up killing a lot of people. And uh, he said he began to be frightened by the very fact uh, that his fears seemed to to have, uh, in, in the middle of this, when he says, but why should I walk on this wooden cross, uh, this wooden Christ, uh, who, uh, who himself uh, was utterly powerless and, and was mocked? Why not go down with the ship? And he began to be frightened by the very fact that his fears seemed to have momentarily vanished. And then uh, they had been a safeguard and they had prevented him all his life from making mad decisions like the one which was now turning, uh, this was turning out to be. Uh, so he said to Frost, well, it's all bloody nonsense. See, he doesn't believe in any of this. He said, it's bloody nonsense, but I'm damned if I'll do such a thing. And he won't walk on this cross. And then, then uh, Frost says, all right, well, come on into the banquet. And he comes into the banquet, and that's where Merlin, of course, does the final big scene in the, in the novel where uh, he is there as translating for the tramp uh, in Latin, ancient Latin. But then the, the, the people who are the head of the institute start to speak. And then it all becomes gibberish. 
And it's interesting, Lewis decides to make the concluding scene a Tower of Babel scene. And that's what Merlin does. Merlin is in charge, and everything becomes total chaos, and just uh, meaningless sentences from all these people that have been so powerful. And it all begins to... And the animals that they had been doing experiments with get loose in the experimental part and start to come through the banquet hall. And then uh, chaos was there, and people pulled guns out and started shooting each other. And Merlin makes sure that the tramp and uh, Mark escape out of this chaos. Because in this, and Frost uh, throws... Uh, gasoline on the, the whole, uh, the head, and everything is now burned up, and then an earthquake occurs, the college is destroyed, the city is destroyed, and, but Mark gets out, and he does get out, and is rescued, uh, just by Merlin, who gets him out, and then he goes and finds his wife, and uh, it's, the, the last scene is tender, he, he finds his wife who's safe in the safe house where Ransom was. And Ransom is the one who kept her safe, who you met in the previous novels. And Ran Dr. Ransom. And he uh, kept her safe, and he was able to converse with Merlin. And anyway, he goes and finds her, uh, and, but he doesn't get to find her. He, he's there, and they say, you go to this room, and wait, we'll send your wife to you. And then uh, Ransom's last uh, line uh, to, uh, to her uh, is, as, as he says goodbye to, to Jane, is, Jane, uh, you, will have no, you will have no more dreams. Uh, now, go to your husband. Uh, you have no more dreams. Have children instead. And so the, this young couple that have decided they weren't going to have children, so Lewis throws that in, have children instead. And so she goes and finds Mark, and they, are, uh, they have a sense of reconciliation, and that's the end of the story. Now, they're not, they're not, they, they're not redeemed. In, in a way, Lewis doesn't, Ransom is not a redeemer. A ransom is a person who keeps them safe keeps them safe against this great harm. But they need now more. And uh, it's interesting to me that uh, just uh, two years later, Lewis, uh, he's ended now that hideous strength, which ends with uh, uh, the earthquake and the fire and all of that. And then the, the, uh, the expose through the, the gibberish, nobody can make heads or tails of what people are saying and it all collapses. And then Mark finds Jane, and they are rescued. But what next? And that's where the book Miracles is so remarkable. There is this wonderful line in, in, in Miracles where Lewis uh, says this. I love this line. He says, men are reluctant to pass over from the notion of an abstract and negative deity to the living God, and I don't wonder. An impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, better still. 
a formless life force surging through us, a vast power that we can tap. And that is what he had in that hideous strait. That's what they were after, this vast power. And that's why they were trying to connect it to Merlin. But that vast power that we can tap, best of all. But God himself, alive, not wood uh, on, the t on the floor, you know, b being trampled on, but God himself alive. It's almost as if it, it, in the back of his head he's thinking of the ending of that hideous strength. But God himself alive at the other end of the cord, uh, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, the king. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, Ransom is called Kingfisher, uh, if you are into that story. And that's from King Arthur. The Kingfisher, he is a... Uh, Ransom is in that tradition of Merlin. So, uh, but best of all, the... Uh, but God himself alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, the king, the husband. Ah, oh, that's quite a different matter. There comes a moment when the children who have been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion, and of course, both Mark and Jane had dabbled in religion, but it, it hadn't really worked. Dabbling in religion uh, suddenly draw back. Supposing we really found him, we never meant it to come to that. And then this great last line of Lewis at this point, we're still supposing he found us. Now that is right back to Feverstone. Feverstone found Mark, but Feverstone is a devil, and he finds him, and then zeroes in on him, and then tempts him and bends him. or try. But Mark makes all the decisions to do his own bending. Even notice even that scene where he was writing the false stories. He knew it was criminal to do this, and yet he did it because it was fun, and everybody was laughing, and he was in the inner circle, so it excused it. But uh, yet still, uh, it, it made him chilled when he realized they wanted his wife in that house. Why did they want his... And he didn't know anything about her dreaming, that that was the reason. Why do they want my wife here? Because they're trying to control her. So... Uh, Lewis uh, now says, we're still supposing he found us. And that is the, the wonder of this book, the, the book Miracles. The best chapter in Miracles is the Grand Miracle chapter, where Lewis actually makes the case that God knows how to find us. And, uh, and, and he does it with meaning. Uh, just the opposite of the Tower of Babel scene. Uh, and he, has a, he creates a parable. He says, let us suppose we possess parts of a novel or a symphony, and someone now brings a newly discovered piece of manuscript and says, this is the missing part of the work. This is the chapter in which the whole plot of the novel really turns. This is the main theme of the symphony. Our business would be to see whether this new passage, if admitted to the central place which the discoverer claims for it, does actually illuminate all the parts we've already seen, and pull them together. Nor shall we go wrong that if the new passage is spurious, however attractive it looks at first glance, uh, it would become harder and harder to reconcile with the rest of the work the longer we consider the matter. But if it were genuine, 
then at every fresh hearing of the music, every fresh reading of the book, we should find it settling down, making itself more at home, eliciting significance from all sorts of details in the whole work which we had hitherto neglected. Even though the new central chapter uh, contained great difficulties in itself, we should still think it genuine, provided that it continually removes difficulties elsewhere. Something like this we must do with the doctrine of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Incarnation. Here, instead of a symphony or a novel, we have the whole mass of our knowledge. The credibility will depend on the extent to which this doctrine, if accepted, can illuminate and integrate that whole mass. It is much less important that the doctrine should itself be fully understandable, fully comprehensible. And then he has a wonderful little uh, parable. We believe that the sun is in the sky in, in midday, in summer midday, not because we can clearly see the sun. In fact, we cannot. We can't look at the sun. But because we can see everything else. This became a major way, and I think Lewis became a believer. The pieces came together. Jesus Christ is able to integrate the whole mass and make it come together. Everything in that hideous strength is, uh, scatters. And uh, it happens, you have to, everything is diminished. Even the, the praise of Mark, it, he's diminished when they say, we chose you. But no, not because you're smart, not because you really are a, a fellow and a scholar. Another guy actually had more talent than you did, but we we want you because and now you you owe us. So instead of that pulling him together, and then the stories they have him write are stories that are false. It's false journalism, and uh, we know a lot about that in in uh, in 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 Twitter and all kinds of false stories and how powerful they can be, and that that scatters. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense of everything. And then, of course, Lewis has one more parable. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space and down into humanity and down further still, if embryologists are right, to recapitulate in the womb ancient and pre-human phases of life, down to the very roots and seabed of the of the nature that he created. This is Lewis's way of saying that Jesus Christ became a real man. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. One may think of a diver, first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, and then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting, till suddenly he breaks surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing he went down to recover. 
He and it are both colored now that they have come up into the light. Down below where it lay colorless in the dark, he lost his color too. And then this portrayal then of the sacrifice of Christ, the, the, the very thing that, that uh, uh, was a kind of brought, it, it was that awareness that this man that I'm supposed to trample on, he, he suffered. And now I'm to add to that, that became for Mark a kind of a, a clarifier. And Lewis ends the, the, this grand miracle chapter uh, with a wonderful conclusion. And, I, and, and again, it's, it's his theology that I, I love. Uh, the way Lewis, he's coming from the edges to find the center. With this, our sketch of the grand miracle may end. Its credibility does not lie in obviousness. Pessimism, optimism, pantheism, materialism, all have this obvious attraction. Each is confirmed at first glance by multitudes of facts. Later on, each meets insuperable obstacles. The doctrine of the, of the incarnation, the coming of Christ, works into our minds quite differently. It digs beneath the surface. It works through the rest of our knowledge by unexpected channels. It harmonizes best with our deepest apprehensions and our second thoughts. And in union with these, it undermines our superficial opinions. It has little to say to the man or woman who's still certain that everything is going to the dogs, or that everything is getting better and better, or that everything is God, or that everything is electricity. Its hour comes when these wholesale creeds have begun to fail us. And in a way, that is Lewis's commentary on the... Uh, the wholesale electricity idea, the wholesale power uh, accumulation idea that uh, was dominating uh, in that hideous strength. Well, that was easy. <laughs> if you read this book, you know how complex it is, how many themes and strands, and we followed just one little piece of it. Uh, but a lot to think about between that hideous strength and miracles. We're going to get back and, and uh, Earl and I will have some conversation about uh, power that harms, power that heals. And uh, then we'll get to your questions coming in a few minutes. Stay around. We'll be back with more. Dick Staub, you're listening to The Killing Views at Earl Palmer Ministries, and we're talking about two books that were written right after World War II, and for some reason it had never really set in me contextually the significance of that uh, until you combined miracles with that hideous strength, and I, and I started thinking about them both in the terms of, of Lewis's interpretation of how Nazi Germany happened, and how... Uh, how he is essentially teasing out a whole bunch of themes, which is why people think there are too many. But I think he's, he's laying out a whole bunch of different ideas of what went wrong. And then it seems to me that he's making the point that the war, the world war is over, but the spiritual war is not over. And that's the deeper war. That's the more important war. That's the war 
If you're going to understand what just happened in Nazi Germany, you have to understand that there was a spiritual dimension to it, which that became interesting to me because I don't know if you know, George Orwell, who wrote 1984, wrote a review of that hideous strength. And this is what Orwell said. And to me, it shows that he did not get it. He said, um, he said, plenty of people in our age, this is what he does get, in our age, do entertain the monstrous dreams of power that Mr. Lewis attributes to his characters, the nice scientists. And we are within sight of the time when such dreams will be realizable. He wrote that before or right after the nuclear bombings of Hiroshima. So he was aware that there were more horrors to come. But then he says this, Lewis's book would have been stronger without the supernatural elements. He uh, said, particularly, I object to the ending in which Nice is overthrown by divine intervention. He says, Lewis is entitled to his beliefs, but they weaken his story. Not only because they offend the average reader's sense of probability, but because, in effect, they decide the issue in advance. When one is told that God and the devil are in conflict, one always knows which side is going to win. The whole drama of the struggle against evil lies in the fact that one does not have supernatural aid. How do you respond to this? The, the, uh, the obvious intent of Lewis is to bring to our attention spiritual realities that underlie uh, the horrific things that happen in our world. And Orwell going the complete opposite direction, saying that weakened this, this story. Well, the, the thing that I don't think that Orwell is, is facing up to is that Lewis uh, preserves, uh, and that's, I, 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 I did my best to try to make sure you saw that. Lewis preserves the fact that at each step of the way, Mark decides, mm -hmm. and he, uh, and, and like, and sometimes he, he, like, in that one important quote, he knew this is criminal, and yet they all were laughing, right. and that laughing and with these people that he wants to be in with, mm -hmm. and they're the good people, I mean, the, the progressive people, he's already made fun of and mocked all the people that are that are the reactionaries and stuff, and, and with them. But they, uh, they're laughing about the fact that, uh, you know, you don't have to, uh, you, you can write anything you want, and, and the people, uh, they'll, they'll believe it. And, and then we'll be able to do, uh, uh, we'll be able to establish this kind of uh, power base that they, we need. But Mark makes the decisions. And you know, I, I do like this. Uh, I, there is a supernatural protection in a way that comes that uh, there's a protection uh, in that Mark doesn't go all the way to brokenness. He goes part way, and then uh, that quote I printed out for you, he had the shock of cold water, but yet, and yet, and yet. He was still toying. He wanted to be in that in, inner circle. And, and yet, he can't really bring his wife there. And, 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 of course, he has a hard time finding her, too, because she's in this safe house. And, uh, but he wants, uh, he, he will not go. And then finally, in that one scene, when he's supposed to walk on this, just this wooden, across. Uh, 
It's not the real Jesus, but it, there was something about it that was so, he was so, uh, uh, there, he almost got a feeling of a, of a, of a suffering Jesus who went uh, ahead and faced all that and, and, uh, and Mark just can't add to the suffering. He said, I can't add any more to that suffering. I think he says something, too, to the effect that for the first time in his life, he asked himself, could this really be true? Yeah. Yeah, so we, but he doesn't, he doesn't reach that conclusion, which I think is one of the good things about the development of Mark, is that That's you right. end the story with a sense of optimism that he is going to work out his faith. And it's also beautiful in that he, the book starts with it being obvious that he doesn't really love his wife. They're newlyweds, but he's already moved everything else into priority ahead of her. And she's very aware of it. And throughout this separation from each other, initially he welcomes this separation because now I can just concentrate on my work. But as he begins to have these revelations that he's trapped in something seductive and destructive, he begins to see the strengths of his wife and want her. Yeah. And near the end of the book, he concludes that he's undeserving of her. And any husbands here know anything about that process? <laughs> I do. Yeah. And, and he realizes he's not deserving of her, and he'll be lucky if she takes him back. And he doesn't think she will. And the book ends with him seeing that he's got an invitation to come in to the room where she is, but you don't know what's going to happen. So it's, it's not, you know, Orwell's complaint is a little overwrought because he, it's not like everything's tied up with a neat bow at the end. But no. The other thing that, you know, it, it's, it's obvious that we are in an age that is struggling with these same issues of power and that there are powers that will heal us and there are powers that will destroy us. It, was interesting to me, and I'm not going to ask you to comment because I know you won't, but it was interesting to me that you changed the title and the focus of this after the election. Uh, and I think anybody that reads this story uh, in contemporary life can just see all over the place all the different dynamics. One of the most important things for us as followers of Jesus is to know what time we are in, to know the spirit of our age, to know where it is at odds with our faith and where it is, uh, you know, consistent with our faith. And as I began to think about this issue of power uh, and your idea of there's a power that harms and a power that heals, I think Lewis does an amazing job in that hideous strength of showing a power that controls people instead of empowering them, uh, that degrades people instead of ennobling them, uh, that is focused on self instead of on community and the common good, and that focuses on division, dividing people instead of uniting them. And uh, it, someone says to Mark, don't you want to understand anything? Isn't it absolutely essential to keep a fierce left and a fierce right both on their toes and each terrified of the other? That's how we get things done. Of course, we're non-political. The real power always is. I mean, it's, there's a lot in that paragraph, but it's very, I think it is very much a description of the AIDS that we're in today. Uh, divided, uh, degraded, not ennobled, not as concerned about the common good. And so 
I would ask you um, what we learn from these books about discerning uh, the power systems that we're in. Yeah. The, the political system we're in, the, the work situations we're in. When are we in a work situation that is, in fact, uh, harming us versus one that is healing us? The church, when is a church ennobling and when is it uh, degrading? These are, all, these are all power institutions. And for us to really apply Lewis's work, we have to start asking those tough questions. Yeah. What's going on in our world today? What are some of your thoughts about that? Well, I, I, I do like the fact that just as, as in the case of his own journey to faith, he has these preliminary experiences, uh, some of them uh, totally tragic, like his, this man uh, killed right in front of his eyes in World War I. And you cannot under, uh, make light of, the, uh, of the, the, you might say, the harm and, and, and abruptness of that to his own psyche. Same also with his good friend Tolkien. They both were in the Battle of Somme. They both saw so much of that that it, it definitely, it was harm. And yet in the middle of that harm, they, they were, uh, in a sense, protected. They were protected, and they were protected not in magical ways. Protected with... Uh, they, it's in the middle of that where he discovers goodness. And uh, he said, when I saw goodness, I, I respected it. It had nothing to do with my desire to want to be good. But when I saw goodness, I respected it. And you know, there is that wonderful moment when I didn't do that part of the story, when Mark tries to find his wife, and there's this good man who will not tell him where the wife is because he's not sure that Mark uh, is safe to, to be told, because he knows uh, this man was a, gr a great scholar and had been his teacher, and now Mark has discounted him and written him off, and yet uh, this teacher shows him grace in and, and not even uh, letting him find his wife, because right at that part of the story he's worried that Mark will betray his wife and will take her to this institute which he knows is deadly so there is a protection and it but it's a protection that in a way people get to play a part in Bonhoeffer talked about the restrainer force and the restrainer force can sometimes be people who uh, not necessarily believers but people who uh, played a role in showing you that that life is precious, that life is meaningful, <coughs> and that uh, good things happen when, uh, when there is straight, when you're straight and not bent, when you're not corrupted. And, uh, and then uh, that's still not redemption. Redemption is when you make your discovery and confess your sins and then uh, and, and you, and experience the grace of God that finds you. And it was interesting, isn't it, that Feverstone finds, but that's the devil finding uh, Mark for a, 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 a dangerous and bad reason. And 
Lewis starting his miracles with Jesus Christ finding us uh, when we're not necessarily looking, yeah. but he finds us. And, and then when he finds us, this symphony is, is sprung on us. And the, the pieces of the puzzle begin to come together. And it makes sense. Yeah. And that making sense uh, pulls things together. And it's not magical the way it happens. It make, it, it's reasonable. And that, that is, is the way it worked in Lewis's own life. And I think uh, that would be, in other words, we have to model a better way and trust that that better way does bear fruit. Yeah. And, and take that, that slower route. Well, it's certainly one of the messages of this book is that we are to be a resistant force, although a minority, that we are to be uh, a force for good, uh, but that ultimately it's up to God how this battle will be won. I mean, there's very much a foolish will confound the wise. The, the whole reversal of Merlin and this, this bum is the, the well-oiled machine of knights with all of their money and sophistication are lifting up this complete buffoon. Meanwhile, they don't, they don't see the real Merlin in the room. Meanwhile, over here, you've got the forces for good, Ransom and this motley crew of people who couldn't, if they tried, mount a resistance, an organized resistance to anything. And Ransom is basically saying it's, it's up to others whether we will succeed or not. You know, we can't do this in our own. And they want him to do something, and he's, he's waiting. He's waiting. So there's a lot of interesting, interesting uh, dynamics for us. Well, I have a lot more questions, but I want to get to the audience's questions. And uh, in the interest of time, we'll, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll get into some of the questions that, that you folks here have for Earl Palmer. Uh, you're listening to uh, The Killing's Muse at Earl Palmer Ministries. We're talking about that hideous strength and miracles. Welcome back, everybody. This is Dick Staub. We're uh, at the Killing Spews at Earl Palmer Ministries on the campus of University of Washington. We're talking about C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength and Miracles. And our theme is power that harms, power that heals. And today our intern extraordinaire, Landon, is going to be going around and handing the uh, microphone off or, or keeping it, but having the person ask their question. And we're going to get started with Jerry tonight. Jerry, what's your question? Okay, um, I know you chose not to focus on Jane's story in that hideous strength, but what elements of the community at St. Anne's give us hope for how to be the church in dangerous times? Oh, you mean the... The role of the... Well, Jane I, being in the community with Ransom and yeah. others. Yeah, that is a... Uh, it's a safe place. And R Ransom is... Uh, of course, it has been in the other stories and is he's not a redeemer figure. Uh, Ransom is a... Uh, he's almost like a... He's a little bit like Gandalf the Wizard. He's a, he's a, a safekeeper. And... Because the big things have got, to be, have got to be solved on their own, by themselves, when they make the discovery uh, of, of God's breakthrough in grace. And in, in St. Anne's, they're 
they're protected by uh, these uh, these good people. That's that's about what you would say. They're good people. They have not fallen. They they've resisted the uh, the takeover of nice, and they uh, and some know more than others do. For instance. Dibble, the man that, that he comes to see to try to find his wife, he is a great scholar and he knows about the Merlin uh, tradition and he knows about that and he knows about the, the tradition that Merlin uh, is asleep and can be awakened and stuff like that. See, I mean, it is a tall story, but he knows that. But yet in, in St. Anne's, uh, for, that's why fortunately, except for one episode where... Uh, the uh, secret police try to, uh, and they torture her a little bit, uh, to try to get her up to the house, and she escapes because they're confused. You know, again, power is not as powerful as it thinks it is, and that also comes out in the story because they, they aren't able to hold on to her because uh, they can't get the car to work and stuff like that. It's almost like in The Sound of Music. They couldn't get the car to work. And uh, But Lewis has got a lot of clever things that he throws into you, uh, but definitely St. Anne's house is a little bit like the church, but it's, it's, it's like the, if you, in mere Christianity, it's like the hallway. Remember, he says, I want to get you into the hallway. It's in the rooms where the fireplaces are, and that's why Ransom doesn't want her to stay. He says, no, you go to Mark and have children. Now, there is something that you don't know, and that is, according to Dibble, he feels that in the ancient myth, the, the, the myth of, Saint, of Arthur, who will produce Merlin, when he saw this girl, he says, she is the one who will produce the next uh, Pedragon, the, the, or Kingfisher, which is what Ransom is. So that's part of the myth. Uh, and so that's why they want to have, have, but he says, you go and have children. In other words, be a normal person and find your husband. And so that's kind of the fun ending. It's a great question. And it's real, well worth kind of exploring uh, for those of us that have read the book to, to kind of pe put that piece together. Carrie, what's your question tonight? Thank you for that wonderful presentation. That was very rich. Brian McLaren has written in the Great Spiritual Migration recently that the church has not trained people well and how to love one another. In other words, in the power that heals. What do you think Lewis would encourage as changes to the contemporary church to help it move forward with the power that heals? Yeah, how does the church move forward with the power that heals? And uh, I think one in helping people to, uh, uh, helping people to decide and make their own decisions and uh, and discover, and then to learn from the discovery. Sort of like uh, Jesus said, blessed are the meek, and the meek are the teachable ones. Blessed are the teachable. And I think, in a way, uh, the, the, the role of, of healing, the healing role that is played at St. Anne's, is that they are stirring up the... the and there, there's one person there who's quite a agnostic, and he is stirred up too, to uh, play the role of listening and learning, and uh, uh, and there is a sense of 
justice there and truth, and that's the role Ransom gets to play. But I, I like to think of that St. Anne's house a little bit like the hallway in, in Mere Christianity, where Lewis said, I wanted to get you into the hallway. I wanted you to be able to, to see the possibilities of God's grace and see how it would unfold. And then uh, you then, uh, you're not deprived of your own experience and role that you must play in it. And I think that's sort of the, that, that's what he protects in the story. So he doesn't make St. Anne's house a redemption place. The redeeming is going to happen. Uh, that's why I think he needed to write miracles to where the redeeming can happen. It doesn't happen in, in, in that hideous strength. But they are spared and saved in, in that sense from the earthquake and the fire that burned up this, uh, this evil place. And they are out of that. And that we're grateful for. Yeah, another great question. Um, Deborah Tannen wrote a book called The Argument Culture in the 90s. She's a communication professor at Boston College. And she said that today's media is talking past each other. There's no belief that there's a golden mean, that there's common ground. It's just yelling at each other for entertainment. And, and I think we've all seen that in our culture. And, and somehow love is the bridge that can help us cross into each other's lives. And that involves listening and, and understanding and, and, and a lot of things that, that are at odds with the way our culture functions right now, which is back to being a, a, a residual resistant force that's living differently in our culture. It's a, another great point. Uh, Drew, what's your question tonight? Hi, uh, thank you very much for uh, talking about that hideous strength. I think that's, it's such a great novel. Anyway, my question is, uh, Lewis seems uh, prescient in his creation of the nice, um, as ridiculous as the ideas of an absolute intelligence or animating dead tissue or confirming man's absolute power over his world, there seems to be a lot of real-world uh, examples uh, like the quest for machine intelligence or the effort to create an artificial brain that's even happening right here in Seattle or the complete denial of Western spirituality in academia. So just wondering if you could comment more on uh, the current relevance of that hideous strength. Well, yeah, you know, Lewis, uh, there's, there's uh, vivisection issues that are in, the, in, in the, that. That's what those animals were all there for. They were to be, uh, they were going to uh, dissect them and they were going to try to work with their heads and stuff. And there is this severed head of the uh, murderer who is, is called the head. They've reanimated his, uh, but we're not sure they really did or it's just in their myth. But uh, that's their goal. They want to create a super intelligence. And it's interesting that Lewis would uh, make that the, uh, the, the, the part that is, uh, instead of being uh, uh, a humble intelligence, uh, an intelligence that is modest and uh, teachable again, uh, meek in that sense, it's to be the super intelligence. We're going to be the superpower. We're going to know more than anybody else. Need nothing from anybody else. In fact, they're going to destroy all of the plants and everything in Edgeworth because uh, they, they, they're going to make all uh, 
cement plants that'll be perfectly sterile. And they, they, it's, it's that kind of fanci fanciful stuff. But it's built on the idea that we can become completely self-contained power. And, and of course, that is not real. And it's not in God's plan. And it's not in, it's, it, it, it doesn't accord with nature. It, it's sort of a, it's an, an arrogance of superpower. Well, it's and, a displacement of God yeah. uh, and a replacement of the tower. That's why the ending with the Tower of Babel is so significant because it's, it's calling it what it is. It's, it's a displacement of God. It's we will be like gods. Yeah. And that, that runs throughout that hideous strength. Great question. Um, is Alan next? Yeah, Alan. Um, Earl, at the very beginning of your comments, you mentioned that Lewis, um, you just briefly said that Lewis was in, uh, in writing that hideous strength was illustrating some things from, from these lectures that he did called The Abolition of Man. Did I hear you right on that? Which, of course, is the, his concern for uh, old values. Remember, yeah, right, his uh, right. inaugural address at Cambridge University was on... The, he, in fact, he said, you can call me a dinosaur because I, uh, they're making fun of me and calling me a dinosaur because I want these old values, you know, chivalry and old values and truth as real truth and and then therefore falsehood is there yeah truth and falsehood and and that was what lewis uh, is is concerned for and i he, think there that you get hints of that in in that hideous strength because there uh, uh they have compromised uh, and Mark begins to fall for this. I mean, that's the bentness that happens to Mark. He sees that this is where the power is in, in, a, in being able to control uh, people and, to, and, uh, di and discard the people that I don't need. And, but the irony is that he got into this by himself, in effect, being discarded by Feverstone. When Feverstone, you know, he got you your fellowship. That interesting line. And it doesn't comfort Mark that he got my fellowship. I thought I did it in a competitive exam. And Lewis even makes a comment that no scholars ever talk that way. But he then said, well, this is the new progressive way that uh, <laughs> we'll do it this way. As if this power can rain down and, and you don't have to really earn it. You don't have to really pass an exam as long as Feverstone grants it to you. And, and he gets into the Institute and he begins to realize that there are these key people that have that kind of power and they're the ones that, that I must attach to. Otherwise, I'd be on a sinking ship. Uh, Alan, Lewis himself, actually, in the foreword, I can read you what he said. He, he says that the novel's point is the same as the nonfiction work, The Abolition of Man, which argues there are natural laws and objective values which education should, should teach children to recognize. That he was trying to get in a fictional construct what he had been saying in the nonfiction, yeah, The Abolition of Man. Uh, David, what's your question tonight? Hi, um, I, uh, I love that hideous strength, but I tend to agree with George Orwell that it's a bit of an ungainly mess in some ways. It's a bit <laughs> like a stew that 
Lewis just threw everything into, and perhaps one of the pieces of chunk, chunks of the, of the meat that went into the stew was, was a bit of Charles Williams' supernatural uh, tendencies. And, but uh, do you think maybe George Orwell, wherever he is, a few, cent, a few decades later, he, he perhaps was watching as his model for 1984 was overthrown in an instant, as if with a bang, uh, and with a lot of kneeling uh, nuns and evidence, and, and as if it's kind of a supernatural judgment on, on the Stalinist regime that Orwell satir satirized in 1984. Do you think perhaps George or Orwell had a box seat for those events? Well, uh, maybe he got his own uh, comeuppance in, 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 in 1984. But, uh, no, I, I kind of, uh, I see his point, though, that, that uh, it is a tall tale, and Merlin does play this kind of supernatural role. He, uh, like, he rescues the, the tramp, and he rescues uh, 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 Mark out of that, terrible banquet where everybody's shooting each other and the and the lions and tigers are going around and killing everybody too i mean it's it is quite a grim scene uh it was kind of funny at first when they were all talking gibberish it's maybe the tower of babel was funny at the beginning until you realize that nobody can understand each other no everybody is now totally isolated we are now we finally got to be our own god and that means total isolation Lewis has that line, you know, the, you know you're in hell when the last voice you heard is your own. Uh, you're not in hell if there's other voices you can hear, but when the last voice you hear is your own. And that's, in a way, what happens in the Tower of Babel scene. In that banquet, uh, nobody can understand anybody, and just themselves. And when they think they're saying something, but nobody can understand what they're saying, they're come, it was almost like a complete... Uh, success of isolation and uh, in a way uh, a lot of uh, uh, you know you might say a lot of cultic movements uh, it, it kind of it, it end in that they end in a kind of isolation uh, and and and, uh, and it is a hell it it's it's a, but uh, it's not what they it's not what they planned they planned to, to have a consolidation of power and, and take over the world, actually, is what they were going to do. But so be, beware. Beware of those uh, plans. And then now the big question is, then is there a divine safety net? If there is, uh, we are grateful that there are, there are, in, there are moments in which you, you sometimes feel you have to say it's providence. It's providence that protected us from going over an edge that is so disastrous. And, and we look back, and again, as Christians, uh, we believe that God uh, holds history in his hands, finally. And I love the line from Karl Barth where he says, in, in our sins, our sins cannot do ultimate mischief. They sure can do mischief, but they can't do ultimate mischief. And Mark doesn't do ultimate mischief with all of the, the bad moves he makes. And, you know, this is something we need to, to say about our own countries and, our, and the countries of the world. Uh, we, have to, we have to trust that uh, the ultimate mischief uh, 
there is a protection that we need to claim, but we need to then model the kind of hope and then model the kind of uh, uh, thoughtful uh, 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 grace and uh, implications of love, which is powerful and is more powerful than the chaos of that Tower of Babel scene. Michael, what's your question? Okay. Um, it's interesting because there's a new book out called Hitler's Religion in which it claims that he was a pantheist, that all nature was God and he was God in that sense. And isn't this sort of a pattern for politicians, whether you're looking at China or North Korea or, or Philippines or Trump, to for the politician to see himself as God and how that plays into uh, total disregard for the truth. I think we have to be really, I think we have to be a very alert about uh, uh, claims that, that lack a, a, a basic modesty to realize that my, uh, my, my power, my life needs to be checked and balanced. There, that's a, there's where the healthy doctrine of sin and of my own sins. Lewis again was said, why do you believe in democracy? Because you believe people are good. No, because I believe people are bad. And therefore, we need to be able to have a check and balance on power. And that again comes from a healthy doctrine of human frailty. And it's interesting that almost every tyrannical uh, movement and tyrannical leaders had, don't have a sense of their own ambiguity. They have a sense of their own power and not of their own ambiguity. And uh, I think a Christian gets that as a benefit from the gospel, uh, that I, I can't have that kind of absolute power, and I shouldn't yearn for it or want it. I, and, and therefore, uh, uh, what Mark wants uh, thankfully, he doesn't finally get, because that is, uh, and it was, it's interesting to me that it was Mr. Dibble, when he goes to see him in his, uh, in his quest to find his wife, where Dibble gives him a moment of grace when he lets Mark know that I, I, I don't trust you now, I want to trust you, I would like to trust you, but I can't trust you now. And be, and I, sen I sense your ambiguity. I sense your complexity. And you need a check and balance upon you. And, when, and I think when we do that in politics and we do that in a country, we, uh, we actually benefit our leaders when we have genuine check and balance on one another. And uh, I think what you just did, though, Michael, if I can be so bold, by naming our president... Uh, is, is the mistake that Lewis wants us to avoid, which is to think that there are good men and there are evil men. Lord Acton said, all great men are evil. You know, there, there is nobody that is not fallen. And uh, Solzhenitsyn said, if only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? And I think if we're going to get past the uh, demonization, 
that I would say happened both in the left and the right in this most recent political campaign, we have to acknowledge our fallenness and that we are ourselves evil instead of scapegoating and personifying any one person as either the savior or the sinner, you know, as an absolute sense. But we have to get a more shaded nuance uh, of, of what we're really up against in this world, which is, as G.K. Chesterton said, we're up against us. Hmm. <laughs> What's the problem with the world? I am, he said. Uh, Tim, you get to have the last question tonight. Wow, well... Um... Dick and Earl, thank you. All around me, people are taking copious notes. It's evident that there's a hunger in our lives for good teaching and clear thinking as we're seeking how to navigate this troubled time in which we're living. So thank you. Uh, you began, Earl, by commenting about C.S. Lewis breaking his silence when he preached the Learning in Wartime sermon because he was loath to speak explicitly to contemporary realities. He preferred to come at them slant through fiction, through narrative, through novel. Um, and so he positions St. Anne's uh, in this as a somewhat silent community. Uh, the, uh, you mentioned they're a safe place, but they're silent. Uh, they don't mount a resistance to the forces of nice. Um, if C so why did C.S. Lewis keep the church since St. Anne's is the closest, you used to call it the hallway, but it's the closest to the church we have in the novel. Yeah, um, that's why right. Why did C.S. Lewis position the church as silent uh, in the face of nice, mm -hmm. uh, resistant in a small kind of way as a yeah. safe, isolated community, but not, not preaching, not teaching, not discipling uh, in a way that could equip people to remain straight rather than, and warn them of the coming bentness. Mm -hmm. um, why, when he himself, or in your words, broke his own silence, recognizing, no, the people of God need to be warned of the danger of bentness. Um, so why is the first question. And the corollary question is, if that church had had a pulpit, if St. Anne's had had a pulpit, what do you think Lewis would have wanted preached from that pulpit? Uh, to help guide the people of that community uh, in remaining straight and resisting nice. Boy, that is, a, that is terrific, yes. Uh, I, uh, and thanks for another great show. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think that is, that is a marvelous comment about the, it is true, St. Anne's, uh, you're a little maybe disappointed if you wished for more. From Ransom, for instance. Ransom is a hero uh, after Paralandra, and he's wounded, you know, in Paralandra, so he's, he's now bearing wounds, and, and, and then a hideous strength. He's a, by the way, he's a philologist. That's his profession, a man of words. And so why doesn't he say more? Uh, and, and Lewis doesn't have him say as much as we would like him to say, he does give that wonderful line at the end to Mary, to, uh, you know, Jane, you won't have any more dreams, Jane. Now go to Mark and have children. Get on with your life. Uh, but, you know, uh, the, the closest to the, uh, the, the preacher that would be in St. Anne's would, in St. Anne's house, would be, would be of course, Ransom, but also Mr. Uh, Dr. Dibble. 
And I think Dr. Dibble is a professor at uh, the, the college, and he is uh, a teacher, uh, kind of a, 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 a kind of a Lewis-like figure or a, a Tolkien-type figure there in the, in the uh, in the house. Uh, but you're right; there, it's mainly in this novel. It's mainly a safe place, hmm. and but it does make possible the next step and the next step of course is when uh, they share this good news with the world and I guess that would be the next step and, mm. and I, I don't think you can say in this story they do it but they do do a very good thing they keep Jane safe and they keep and they rescue Mark and they rescue others that were that came to them, and uh, yeah. and now they're poised because they're poised to do the rebuilding that needs to be done. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it true though, Tim, that throughout Scripture we we see the danger of inactivity and the danger of hyperactivity in, in the kingdom of God? It's kind of knowing what our time is and what we are to do. Well, you know, one of Earl's favorite sayings is that your story is not fully written, that you have more chapters to write in your story. And I love the fact that this book ends with this. Mark says of his wife, Jane, what he had called her coldness seemed now to be her patience, whereof the memory scalded, for he loved her now. But it was all spoiled, too late to mend matters. And then he sees that her door is open. He's inviting her in. He's going to give her, she's going to give him a chance to mend matters. And so in days when we are concerned and in turmoil, our chapters are not written yet. Our story is not finished. We need to write the next chapters and make them, make them good ones. Thanks for joining us tonight. This is Dick Staub with Earl Palmer at the Kindle News. We'll see you next time.